Well, good morning. This morning, we're going to return to our study of Ephesians, and we're going to examine the topic of how to become a grown-up church. And I was uh, reminded as I was preparing for this sermon uh, that all living things grow, and that's actually a good illustration, I think, of spiritual growth. In biology, growth is defined as an increase in the number or size of a living thing's cells, and uh, every human being uh, biologically starts life as a single cell. That cell then divides to form other cells. Over time, the number of cells will grow, and they will change in character. Some of the cells uh, will turn into cells that form the skin, others the bones, others muscle, and still others the organs of the body. Two months after conception, almost all of a baby's organs are fully formed, but the baby is still only around an inch and a half long. After seven months, the baby is 15 inches long and weighs about two pounds. But between seven months and birth, there's this amazing growth where the baby will grow uh, in length, about 50%, and will also triple or quadruple in terms of its weight. Uh, And then after birth, of course, uh, every healthy human being grows until they reach full adulthood. Uh, Every healthy person grows, and uh, it's an amazing process. If you study anatomy and physiology, it's amazing the way that God has created us and the way He creates growth. And I think in our passage we come to this morning, the Apostle Paul, in a way, is reminding us that where there is spiritual life, there will be continued spiritual life growth as well. That's true for individual Christians. It's also true for church families. And so, I invite you to turn in your Bible to Ephesians 4, verse 7. Last week, we discovered that Christ has a plan for the growth of the church that includes the growth of every individual Christian who is also part of that church. And uh, there is a process that Paul describes that shows us how to become a grown-up church. The first step in the process, verse 11, is that Christ Himself raises up gifted leaders to equip the saints. And then the second step, verse 12, is that those spiritually gifted saints who've been influenced and equipped by those leaders, those saints then go about doing the work of ministry to one another as they use their gifts. And uh, I need to give a retraction here. Uh, Last week, uh, I set up uh, a math equation with a relationship between the miraculous sign gifts and the permanent spiritual gifts that somehow came out to 18 minus 4 equals 12. That's the danger of doing math in public, and 18 minus 4 doesn't equal 12. It should have been 16. 16 minus 4 equals 12. But the the, the bigger point I want to make about the spiritual gifts, and, and if you study the spiritual gifts, if you grab like two systematic theologies and you compare what the authors say about spiritual gifts, one of the difficulties that comes in is how do we categorize them? Should the gift of helps in Romans 12 be considered the same thing as the gift of service in 1 Corinthians 12? I mean, they're they're kind of close to one another. Should leadership in Romans 12 be considered the same as administration in 1 Corinthians 12? How do you count them? Uh, Are some of them duplicates? And so, actually, Uh, biblical authors will disagree, I'm sorry, biblical authors, uh, uh, Bible teachers will disagree about the exact number, uh, but they all come out above 10, in excess of 10. There's, There's, in other words, there's more than a handful of spiritual gifts 
gifts that Christ is working with. And last week, I taught you that I believe that it's not accurate to say that we're given one spiritual gift. We're given a blend of gifts that usually has a few primary gifts uh, that we, we practice. And so, every Christian is a unique blend of gifting for service in the church and helping fellow believers grow. But the the main point there, getting back to the main point of what we studied last week, is that there's this two-step process of growth in the church. Uh, Christ gives gifted leaders to equip the saints, and then those gifted, equipped saints, they uh, encourage one another, minister to one another, love one another, and they all grow up together. And the result of that two-step process then is, verse 13, that every member of the church grows up in Christ's likeness. So, verses 11 through 13 taught us how the church grows up. Today, we're going to focus on what the outcome is when the church grows up. Uh, we're going to look primarily at verses 14 through 16, and they're going to teach us what the church looks like when it grows up. A grown-up church will be doctrinally sound, Christ-like, and mutually equipping. Let's read the text together. I'm going to start in verse 7 and then skip down to verse 11 to keep the main idea of Paul's thought in focus in, instead of reading his digression in verse 8. But we'll read from 7 to 11 and then down to 16 together. Paul says uh, in Ephesians 4, 7, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. What the Holy Spirit said through the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit is now saying to us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we attempt to understand what it means for us to grow up spiritually, please be our teacher. We don't want to remain spiritual children. We want to be the kind of people who can wisely speak truth and love to others, who reflect the moral image of your Son, and who can help our fellow Christians make progress in the faith. We believe you've given us your Word and your Spirit to help us in this endeavor. And so please move in a special way. Help me as I preach and help those who hear. In the great name of Jesus we pray, amen. So the purpose of becoming a grown-up church is that we would become a doctrinally sound church, a Christ-like church, and a mutually equipping church family. Look again at verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the, tricky, uh, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. As a result of Christ's plan for the church, uh, we are to grow up and no longer be like spiritual children. Now, it's true that every single Christian 
has to go through a phase of the Christian life that is spiritual childhood, that's true, but the goal is to grow out of it. Spiritual childhood should not be romanticized as some age of idyllic spiritual innocence. No Christian should want to remain a spiritual baby. And there are two important implications of what Paul teaches here in verse 14. The first is so obvious, we might be tempted to skip over it, and it's this. First of all, every Christian begins life as a spiritual infant. This is a a phase in life every single one of us has to go through spiritually. Uh, Paul is using the analogy of children here to portray spiritual immaturity, and he's not being complimentary about it. Physical children start off life being ignorant and gullible and inexperienced, and that's no condition to remain in spiritually if you actually want to make progress navigating the narrow path that leads to eternal life. Now, the fact that every Christian begins life as a spiritual infant, it's taught all over the New Testament. For instance, in John 3, Jesus is speaking to one of the leading religious leaders of His day, Nicodemus, and He tells Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To be born again is to be born spiritually. You must come into the kingdom of God as a spiritual baby. When someone comes to Christ, that person is just beginning their spiritual life, and they're a spiritual child. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul explains to the church in Corinth why on his last visit when he was with them, he had to challenge and confront and rebuke them, and he says this about his previous visit in in the letter, "'And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh.'" as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink and not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able. And that's a rebuke by Paul. Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church because when he looks at how long they've been in Christ, by now they should have been much more mature. He, he came to Corinth uh, to give them a spiritual checkup, and at the end of the checkup, they were all in like the bottom 10% of the spiritual height and weight chart, and, and he was a little unhappy about it, and so he rebukes them. Uh, but the point I want to make is that we all have to go through a phase where we are spiritual children. In uh, 1 John 2, uh, the Apostle John portrays the growth process in three stages. Uh, it includes the phase of spiritual childhood, and then the phase of being a young man or young woman in the faith, and then the phase of being a father or mother in the faith. Uh, That's a progression we all have to grow up through. But why does Paul use the analogy of children here? What is he seeing in children that corresponds to spiritual childhood? Well, as we study this verse, verse 14, the answer becomes clear. Spiritual children are unstable and easily deceived. Consider for a moment their instability. Paul says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine. So, the image is of a small boat uh, that's encountered a storm and is being tossed around violently uh, and carried off its course. The Welsh pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, gave an insightful list in his commentary on Ephesians, an insightful list explaining what spiritual instability looks like. In the physical world, children can be fickle. They can change one moment from laughter to tears. Uh, and spiritual children are the same way. They can like a resource one week and 
Next week, hate it. In the physical world, children can be impulsive. Everything has to stop right now, and their problem has to be addressed and fixed. Uh, they have to have something now. They can't wait to get it in the future. Uh, spiritual children, in the same way, often find it hard to wait on God and to continue to persevere in obedience when things are difficult. Uh, physical children also lack self-control. Uh, they're driven along by their feelings and passions. They're prone to excessive overreactions, and the same is true for spiritual children. Uh, but in contrast to all of that childlike instability, uh, there is one Christian virtue above all the other virtues. There's one Christian virtue that can help us grow up and mature and move past childlike instability. And that Christian virtue is sober-mindedness. Now, in the Greek mind, the opposite of being sober-minded was to be drunk, right? Sober, drunk. And drunk on what? Well, drunk on alcohol. That's how it started out in, in Greek thought. But if you pay attention, the New Testament authors use this idea of being sober-minded also for not being drunk on passions, emotions, and overreactions. Um, uh, they use it to speak spiritually of not being controlled and intoxicated by passions, which if allowed to run the show, ruin everything. Sober-mindedness is the Christian virtue that says, I'm not going to be governed by my passions. I, I'm not going to ignore my passions, and I certainly won't ignore my emotions if they're telling me something important, but I'm not going to allow my emotions to have the final say. In redemption, God has given back control of me to me, and I'm not going to let my passions run the show. That's the idea of sober-mindedness. And practically speaking, when you can grow in sober-mindedness, it pays off. It gives you these three benefits, which not only bless you, they bless everyone else who has to live with you. <laughs> they, they bless everyone around you who's influenced by you. And here are the three things sober-mindedness will get you if you can grow in it. First of all, number one, clarity of mind. You'll see things clearly. You won't be swayed by manipulation. Things won't be cloudy or fuzzy in your thinking. You'll have biblical clarity about uh, right and wrong, what's up and down. You know, you, you'll, you'll know where you need to go. The second thing that sober-mindedness gives you is stability of soul. There's a groundedness to you. There's a steadiness to you as you work away at whatever this endeavor is. You work away at it steadily, and when you encounter obstacles, you don't underreact and you don't overreact. You just keep working away steadily at it. You're not tossed around by uh, emotions. You're stable. And then the third thing sober-mindedness produces is a readiness to act. You're not apathetic. You're not lazy. You're not passive. On the other side, you're also not going to overreact, uh, but you're ready to act. You're ready to respond appropriately to whatever is thrown at you. Now, when we think about sober-mindedness, the gifted leaders God gives the church are called to be sober-minded. It's actually a qualification for being an elder. And so, those of us who are elders at Grace, we need to lead in this. We, we need to set the tone in being sober-minded. But all Christians are called to be sober-minded. Let me give you a couple examples. Men are called to be sober-minded in Titus chapter 2. Men who follow Christ 
are not supposed to be driven along by our passions. We're not supposed to be controlled by them. We're supposed to be in control of them. And the same is true also for godly women. In Titus 2, all women who make a profession of godliness are to be sober-minded. That's what godly women are expected to be. Godly women should not be tossed about by their passions or allow their emotions to have the final say. And so, if you take the exhortation Paul is giving here in in verse 14, where he's saying negatively, don't be like this, don't be like a child that's tossed around, and you were to take it and turn it on its head and make it into a positive exhortation, the positive exhortation would be to grow in spiritual stability by having clarity of mind and stability of soul and a readiness to act. And, and to not allow your passions and emotions to control you, and all of that adds up to being sober-minded. I think if you, if you take this and you look at the opposite of it, verse 14, it's really an exhortation to grow, to grow past our childlike ways by growing in being sober-minded. Now, the second characteristic that physical children and spiritually immature Christians share in common is not just being unstable, but being easily deceived. Notice that Paul warns us about being carried away by every wind of doctrine, the Greek word that we translate doctrine here. It just means teaching, carried along by every wind of teaching. Uh, Because spiritual children lack knowledge of the faith, they can be carried about uh, by every gust of wind, by every theological fad that comes along. I remember uh, when I was a young and inexperienced uh, freshman at the Master's University Uh, I enjoyed what I was learning in my Bible classes. I'd grown up in public school, and so being in a Christian university, having Bible classes, I remember really enjoying uh, what I was being taught. But I remember one day a theology professor talked about fads in theology, and that was like incomprehensible to me, and my logic went something like this. Well, when we do theology, we're all studying the Bible and the Bible, like the, the books of the Bible are almost, almost all of them are 2,000 years old or more, in the Old Testament, more than 2,000 years old. Like if, if anything, the threat would be of modern people considering this to be like a musty, dusty old book. So how could you get fads out of that? It, it made no sense to me. And what happened was I was just inexperienced. I just needed to, to live a little bit of life. And uh, over time, I was uh, introduced to Christian publishing. And guess what? In Christian publishing, there's fads, there's trends, there's always the latest and greatest book about some uh, forgotten or undiscovered part of the Christian faith that we desperately need to add uh, that's, that's become the new bestseller. Uh, and Christian publishing has its fads. It has its gusts of wind. It has its waves of teaching and doctrine. And, and to be fair to Christian publishing, some of what is published is very good and helpful. Uh, others of it is a confusing mix uh, of the good along with the bad and unhelpful. But I would say the majority of Christian publishing, the majority of that which calls itself Christian in publishing is actually harmful. And if you follow it, it will take you off course in your spiritual voyage. And that's why I gave the exhortation earlier about being sober-minded and in control of your passions. Here's how that connects. For false teaching to work, it has to have two things. It has to be plausible. It has to be believable, but it also has to be attractive. And so, what false doctrines do is usually false teachers quote Scripture 
but if you'll pay, and, and they're quoting Scripture to make what they're teaching sound more plausible, but if you pay close attention to how they're using the Scripture, how they're interpreting it, how they're applying it, if you pay close attention, you'll see that they're, they're misusing it, they're misquoting it, they're, they're misunderstanding or misinterpreting or misportraying it uh, and using it in the wrong way. And then the other thing they do is they make all of their conclusions attractive to the flesh. No false teacher ever peddles false doctrine that isn't attractive to the flesh. It wouldn't sell. That doesn't sell books. That doesn't get you money. So it has to be attractive to the flesh. And what happens is if you grow in control of your passions, you'll be able to see through it. So, so you'll be reading the book and you'll say, wait a minute, I don't think that Scripture means that. I don't, nah, you're misusing that Scripture. And if you're in control of your passions, you'll be able to see, wait a minute, all you're doing is just appealing to my love of money. Really? That's it? This whole thing was about money? You can't serve God and mammon. I'm not going to be taken in by this, right? That, that's what will happen if you're in control of your passions. And so, if you can grow in understanding the whole counsel of God so you can spot it when people misrepresent Scripture, but then also if you have your passions and desires under control, you'll be able to see through the lies. Our aim here at Grace Fellowship Church is not to be a compassless, rudderless ship adrift at sea. We aim to be a ship with a compass and a rudder and an anchor with sober-minded elders at the helm. That's what we're trying to do. And that means that when it comes to our preaching and teaching and even the lyrics of the songs we sing together uh, for congregational singing, we serve healthy meals, not spiritual junk food. Paul warns Timothy, the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but wishing to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own passions and will turn aside to myths. Grown-up Christians have hungry hearts, not itching ears, and grown-up church families are marked by a love of sound doctrine. Uh, the second purpose Christ has in nurturing the church is that we would become a Christ-like church family, that we would become a family that reflects His moral image. Look again at verse 15. In contrast to being a church that's unstable and easily deceived, Paul says, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. One of the best ways that we can deliver ourselves and others from being taken in and carried off course by false uh, winds of false doctrine is to speak truth and love to one another. Now, of course, pastor teachers should speak truth and love uh, with the public ministry of the Word, but speaking the truth in love is most powerful and most effective when it's done from the pews, when it's done in the pews with one another. Uh, the church is not Christ-like just because the pulpit preaches sound doctrine. The body life of the church has to be characterized by each member wisely speaking truth and love to one another. Christians grow best by living in fellowship with one another and by living in fellowship with other Christians who will lovingly speak truth to them. Now, when it comes to how we lovingly speak truth, and particularly when you look at our own culture and the, the location of Grace Fellowship Church and the situation we find ourselves in, I think one of the verses that can help us remember what it means to speak truth in love is Proverbs 27, 6, which says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Translation, 
It's better to be cut by a friend who is cutting to heal than to be kissed by an enemy. So, fire your Christian therapist who says, I ran across this this week, and I can't help but use it as an illustration. I ran across a story this week of a Christian therapist who was telling a single 20-something woman that, that she was counseling that even though this woman was willingly, willingly, voluntarily uh, sleeping with her boyfriend, that she was actually a victim who was being oppressed because her boyfriend was five years older than her. Well, my response to that would be, well, you can be a victim and a sinner all at the same time. Like, this is not helpful. It's not helpful when we portray everybody as a victim when at times we are just living in open sin. And, uh, and so, as we endeavor to speak the truth in love to one another, we need to remember that on the one hand, truth-telling is counterproductive if we don't speak it in love. Uh, tru- truth spoken without love is brutality. It's not our goal here at Grace to be brutally honest with one another. That's not what we're trying to do. Um, all that does is wound without the intention to heal. But on the other hand, love without truth is either foolishness or sentimentality or hypocrisy or some kind of polite people-pleasing. And so, we want to encourage one another, but not flatter one another. We want to encourage each other, but we're not going to give affirmation to people who are living in ways that are obviously self-destructive, right? Uh, so, we aim to grow up as a church family by wisely speaking the truth in love to one another. And as we speak truth in love, the text is clear that the result is we'll grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. Now, by God's grace here at Grace Fellowship over the last few years, we have been able to enjoy some slow but steady numerical growth. And I, of course, as a pastor, I rejoice in that. Um, And I think we need to tell ourselves, we need to be realistic. There's going to be some years that go by where we don't grow numerically. But in light of the verses we're studying, we need to say there should never be a year where Grace Fellowship Church doesn't grow spiritually speaking. There should never be a year that goes by where the majority of the members aren't growing in faith in Christ or knowledge of Christ or in obedience to Christ. And concerning this issue of spiritual maturity, it's important to note Paul's definition in verse 15. Paul doesn't so much give us a definition of spiritual maturity as he points us to a person. We're to grow up in all aspects into the moral image of Christ. Now, that's crucial to, conserve, uh, to, to, to observe because comparison is the favorite indoor sport of the church. It's what Christians do. And so, what you end up having is you have some Christians who are discouraged as they look up at people they admire who they perceive to be more spiritually mature. You have other Christians uh, who are arrogant, looking down on people that they perceive to be less spiritually mature, but all of that is foolishness because uh, the, the goal, the model, the example that we're comparing ourselves with is Christ. And even though every honest comparison of ourselves with Christ uh, we're going to fall short of, we understand that, we don't get discouraged because He is the most amazing person in the universe. He's the only one worth trying to imitate in this world. Uh, And we know that when we fall short, uh, He gives mercy to those who confess and grace to those who ask for help. And so, with Christ as our standard, as we wisely speak truth in love to one another, we grow up 
in Christ-likeness as a church family. And so we see in verse, verses 14 and 15, the purpose of Christ giving the church gifted leaders and gifted saints is so that the church would become stable spiritually and not easily deceived. In other words, that it would grow up uh, into being a doctrinally sound church family. And we've also seen, verse 15, that the church would grow up to be Christ-like as we speak truth and love to one another. But finally, verse 16, we see there's one more goal for the church that Christ has, and that's becoming a mutually equipping church. Now, backing up into verse 15 so that reading the verse makes sense, Paul says, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So, in verse 16, we find four clear teachings about Christ's plan for the church. First of all, uh, backing up just a little bit into the end of verse 15 for context, it's important for us all to note that Christ is the head of the church. He is the sovereign over the church. He's the final authority over the church. He's the ultimate source of the church's growth. Christ is in charge. And if you want a graphic example of Him being in charge, you can go read Revelation chapter 1, where Christ is walking amongst the lampstands that represent churches in the world, and He's giving commands as if they're to be obeyed. He's exercising authority there in Revelation chapter 1. He controls what's going on in the church and their leaders. As head of the church, Christ is also the source of life, life and growth in the church. Now, we're going to see here in verse 16 that the way Christ has designed it is that the church builds each, uh, the individuals in the church build one another up as they use their spiritual gifts with one another. But who gave them the gifts in the first place? The head of the church, Christ. And so we want to say, yes, functionally, functionally speaking, The church builds itself up as the members use their gifts, but ultimately, Christ is the one who causes the growth because He gives the gifts, and that's part of Him being head of the church. Now, as we think about how to apply this idea that Christ is head of the church, there is uh, something in the dynamics of our thinking uh, as participants in American evangelicalism that I just can't pass over as we're in verse 16. There is a popular church growth model out there uh, that is somewhat unique uh, to American evangelicalism, and that church model, it goes like this. Go out and find the most gifted public speaker possible and make him our primary teaching pastor. Find a guy who could have been a stand-up comedian in his other career, make him pastor, and we'll build the church around him. Just hire LeBron James, and we'll build the whole thing around him. And once we get him installed, and his comedic ability in the pulpit starts to bring people in, you know what else we'll do? We'll do whatever it takes to make him happy, because if he ever leaves, we lose all the people he brought in. So say yes to pastor, give him what he wants, make him happy. There's other churches calling him, trying to recruit him. And what happens over time to this church growth model is that eventually the pastor's character flaws and his lack of accountability catch up with him and the church, and there's a meltdown, people get hurt, and then 
evangelical Christians wonder exactly what happened. But if Christ is head of the church, everything else is just body, even gifted pastors. John MacArthur is just body. John Piper is just a fellow member of the body. James McDonald is just body. And if he would have willingly submitted to his fellow elders, his church wouldn't have had a meltdown. Mark Driscoll, just body. And if he wasn't elevated into the office of pastor when he clearly didn't have the spiritual maturity to exercise that office, their church wouldn't have had a meltdown. No pastor should be allowed to live above or outside of the accountability that we would say every member of the church in the pews needs. Uh, Pastors should not be allowed to exercise unchecked control over the church because all pastors are men in the middle of their own sanctification, and the New Testament clearly communicates the idea of plural, collaborative elder leadership in the church. If Christ is the head, everything else is just body, and building a cult of personality around a man with comedic ability is not the wisest way to grow a local church. There's a second implication to verse 16, and it's this, that Christ intends every individual Christian to grow within a community of other Christians. Verse 16 says that the proper working of each part of the body causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So, Christ is the ultimate source of spiritual growth, but He's designed that spiritual growth to take place functionally when gifted members use their gifts to help each other grow which means Christians don't grow well in isolation. Christians don't grow well in isolation from other believers. Um, If some, I don't like this illustration, but I'll use it. If some terrible accident were to happen and my arm was to be severed from my body, what would happen to the cells and the living tissues in that arm? Well, eventually they would die because it's been cut off from the life-giving nutrients of the body, right? And the same is true with Christians who are cut off from the church. They don't tend to grow well. And this is a particularly helpful reminder to us at our specific moment in history because as Americans, we've all been influenced by individualism. We all tend to think of ourselves as individual Christians first and members of the universal church second. And it's not entirely wrong to think of ourselves as individuals. God knows us as individuals. He loves us as individuals. But God also has adopted us into His family, and uh, He sees us as part of His larger family along with our brothers and sisters. And Christ has given us a role to play in the church, wherein the church needs the unique gifts we bring to the table, and we also need the church because we can't grow in isolation. So, Christ has designed the spiritual growth that He supplies uh, to take place within the context of the Christian community that a local church is. The third implication of verse 16 is that every individual Christian is supposed to contribute to the growth of the church. If you're a born-again Christian, you have a role to play. And verse 7 was clear that you've been given gifts by Christ. You have a unique blend of spiritual gifts, and there's a particular, and even I would say it this way, a peculiar, unique kind of help that you can bring that the church needs, and only you can bring it. Christ has ordained that when you properly use your gifts, you help other Christians grow. And then the church also grows, verse 16, in accordance to the proper working of each part. Again, we're we're still talking about 
um, every member participating. Uh, and, and when we say that every member ought to participate in the life of the church, uh, what that adds up to is that it's a sin against the body to come to church only to spectate, only to receive and not to give. You have work to do if you're a Christian, and when every member of the church works together properly, the church grows up in Christ's likeness. The fourth implication of verse 16 is that the lifeblood of spiritual growth is love. Christ gives every member of the body spiritual gifts, and the body of Christ grows as every member of the body properly uses those gifts for the building up of itself in, keyword, love. Love then functions like blood does to the physical body. Blood brings the vital oxygen and nutrients that every part of the body needs. Without the blood, there's no growth and there's no life. And in the same way, without love, there will be no spiritual growth in the church. People might be functionally using their gifts. There could be busyness. There could be some work going on. But if it's not motivated by love, there won't be growth. And this is why one of the most oft-repeated commands to the church in the New Testament is to love one another. To sum up the, ver- the teaching of verse 16, then, we could say this, Christ is the head of the church, and He intends individual Christians to grow up by participating in the life of the church and to contribute with their gifts to the growth of the church. And the lifeblood of that growth is love, which means I actually preached this is good, I caught myself. I actually preached verse 16 wrong. The exhortation I gave in verse 16 is that you need to be in the church using your spiritual gifts. That's not completely accurate. It would be better to say you should lovingly, and maybe we could put lovingly in all capital letters, you should lovingly exercise your spiritual gifts in the church. Uh, So, what verse 16 adds up to then is this. A grown-up church is a mutually equipping church. A grown-up church is where uh, the whole body causes the building up of itself in love. To sum up all three of these verses then, we could say this, Christ has a game plan for the church, and when you look past how that plan functions to see the goals the plan is aiming at, you see that His goals for the church are that the church would become doctrinally sound, Christ-like in character, and mutually equipping. And so, understanding that now, let me pose this question to you. Brother Christian, let me ask you, are you on board personally with Christ's plan for the church? Christ loves the church. It's it's what He's building. It's the primary institution in our age of redemption where He's working in the world to reconcile people to God. Every other institution will eventually fade away, but the church will continue into eternity future. Empires rise and fall. Nations, for example, that are experiments in ordered liberty, rise and fall. But the church survives them all and is what matters to Christ. Does it matter to you? Will you participate with us at Grace Fellowship Church by using your gifts? And if you're already participating with us and using your gifts, uh, will you continue to use your gifts lovingly for the common good? Let's pray.